Today we're going to finish up our lessons in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 16. We're in lesson 26. And we're going to look at some final instructions that Paul is giving to this church. And some of them have application to you, but just so you're aware of what you're reading, we're going to go through them a little bit. So let's kind of uh, look at this together. First of all, let's look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. He's going to give them some instructions here concerning the offering. Concerning the offering. Look at what he writes there. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Okay, so let's look at a couple things here. First of all, he's going to say that the instructions he's about to give them are similar. Paul is giving them the same instructions that he gave to the Galatian churches. Paul is giving them the same instructions that he is giving to the Galatian churches. Now, the application for this, this verse is, I think, significant, because he's going to tell us about how to handle the offering here in a moment. So how he's going to tell us how to handle the offering should be similar for all churches. But the fact of the matter is not all churches look at it that way. But we're going to look and see what he tells us, and then we're going to say, you know, we need to conform our lives as a church to what he's saying, because it is scriptural. So, look with me. Here's the first thing he says. The timing of the offering. Paul instructs them to gather the offering on the first day of the week. Now, what day would that be? Sunday, or the Lord's Day. Why Why would it be fitting for them to gather the offering at that time? Why would it be a good time to gather it on Sunday? Think about practically. Why would taking an offering be practical and a good time to do it is on Sunday? Why would that be a good time? It's a very practical answer. It's it's like there. You don't have to think real deep theologically to figure it out. Not everybody's off, but everybody's there. They're gathered together to worship. So if they're because why are they gathered together to worship on the Lord's Day? So while they're there, they might as well go ahead and take up what? The offering. So Paul instructs them to gather the offering on the first day of the week. Now, I want you to notice something here that's very significant. You can almost miss what he's saying here. Here's the next point. They were not to collect the offering when he comes. So when the apostle shows up, He wants them to collect it as a regular part on on every Sunday, the first day of the week. They were to gather an offering, and they were to collect it on the first day of the week. But when he comes, he doesn't want them to take the offering. He doesn't want them to take the offering. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Why do you think he doesn't want them to take the offering when he comes? Again, you don't have to be really deep to think about this. It's really practical. Why do you think he doesn't want them to take the offering when he comes? 
Okay, Bruce said he doesn't want them to think that it's for him. Okay, anybody want to build upon what Bruce is saying? Okay, Amanda. Okay, he doesn't want them to think that it's the only time they should give is when he shows up. Okay, that's, that's a possible answer. Okay, anybody else? Okay, he doesn't want them thinking that he's doing it for the money. Okay, that's good. That connects really with what Bruce is saying. That's good, Rob. Anybody else want to add anything? Okay, here's what I want you to see. This is why this is so apropos to even today. He's wanting them to understand that the... First of all, notice what he says in the scripture. When they take the collection, the collection is for who? Look at verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Now, just so you understand, so you're not influenced by the teaching of another church group, saints here refers to holy ones or separated ones, refers to believers, not just some special somebody who died who did something special. We're not taking a collection for them. We're taking it for the believers. All right? Specifically, the collection that he's taking up here is probably for the believers who are suffering in Jerusalem. So, what I want you to see here is, is that this collection is for the saints. And he says there's, the appropriate time to take it is in worship. And when, if I'm there, I don't want you to take the offering. Because he doesn't want him being connected with the offering. Because here's what can happen. In that day, they had teachers that would go around, and even in the Christian church, and they would insist upon a love offering. An offering, and they would benefit from it. They were peddling, Paul will talk about it later, that he doesn't peddle the word for profit. They, he, doesn't, he doesn't want it to be seen that he is doing ministry for his own personal gain. You understand? And he's going to give some other instructions here in a moment as far as how the offering was to be handled so that there could be integrity with the offering. So what we're seeing here is Paul's communicating a standard of integrity for how money is to be used or gathered in the church. You gather it when everybody's together. You don't gather it when I'm there, he says, because I don't want it connected with me. And so there's, 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 some, there's some underlying things here that we need to, to see that when you give in the offering, you're not, for instance, in our church, you're not giving to George, although George benefits from it through a salary. You're giving to who? The church. But who's the church? Is it the building, the organization? No, it, it's the people and the ministry that takes place here among the people. Among the people. So here's what he wants to see. Now, Look at, first of all, he's going to talk about a courier. They were to select someone they trust to carry the gift to Jerusalem. Now notice what he, he doesn't say here. It's okay, I'm going to, don't take it when I'm there, but when I show up, hand it over to me. You notice he didn't say that. What does he say? Select someone from among you whom you trust to handle the funds. Select someone from among you who you trust to handle the funds. Now, here's what I want you to see. You can almost see from the very beginning that they're talking about having somebody like a treasurer. You know, I think there is another biblical officer office, and it needs to be a treasurer. And the treasurer is selected by who? The people. And it's selected as someone who can be trusted with the finances. You understand? Because we want to have integrity here. You notice that he didn't say that it just handed over to me the apostle. You notice he didn't say that. 
Why? Because he wants to maintain that level of integrity. Now, here's the problem. Today, and even in our circle of churches, I knew of a Baptist church where the treasurer was the pastor. Hmm. Okay, conflict of interest is what Tom says. You see what I'm saying? Can you see the danger in that? And I think they did have some problems. Or the treasurer was the pastor's wife. You're laughing, Rob, but I mean, this happens. Did you see what I'm saying now? Now, but think about this now. When you've got a church where they have set that up, what does that tell you about the people in that church? What's that? Naive is what uh, Joy says. What else do you think? Well, not necessarily a limited amount of trustful people, but I would say they weren't biblical. They didn't know their Bible. You understand what I'm saying? They put and, and if they they didn't they put too much trust in one man. They put too much trust in one man and weren't biblical. And even if that preacher had said to them, "This is the way it's going to be," they should have said to him, "No, no, this is the way it's going to be." Before he came there, do you understand what I'm saying? Because you can be finances. You know, there are several things that will do a preacher in. Adultery is number one. Number two is the handling of finances. And listen, if a preacher falls because in a church and has to leave the church because he didn't handle the finances right, that's not just his responsibility. Who else is responsible? The people. Because they empowered him to what? It's like putting a carrot in front of a a rabbit and saying... Here, 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 here. I dare you to take it. You know, that's not good, is it? You know, so they were to select someone that they trusted, a courier, to carry the gift. Someone from among them. Now, here's what Paul's saying. It is possible that Paul would accompany their representative. He says, it may be that I may go with them, but they're the ones who are going to carry the money. They're the ones who are going to bring the gift. It's just that I may be a traveling companion. It's not for me. It's not for me. Now, I want to stop for a moment. I didn't bring this out in your notes, but I do want you to go back for a moment. Look with me at verse 2, because I think this is very significant. Because sometimes there's a lot of debate as far as what the Scripture teaches concerning the offering and how much you should give. Notice what he says. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something... Notice he's not being specific. Lay something aside. What? Storing up as he may prosper. So, as God prospers you, as God provides for you, the scripture is saying you're to lay something aside for what? The offering. Now, he doesn't specifically, you're not going to find anywhere in the New Testament that it says... 10%. Under the New Covenant, it doesn't specifically say 10%. And and you say, well, well, it should be. Well, maybe. Because for some it might be 25. Oh. I think I like it better when it was 10. Because here's the thing. What I want you to see is, and we're going to see this next week in the morning message. When you go to the first church, right after, in chapter 2 of Acts, It says that people there 
saw the needs of others as more important than their own, and they sold their property to help other people out. That's more than 10%. You understand? The point is, is that as God prospers you, you and your relationship with Him, listen to me, you and your relationship with Him, need to decide between you and God, how much should I be given, Lord? What do you want me to give? And see, here's the thing. Remember what I said. We already looked at it in this letter when he talked about that you should be let... It's actually in the second letter. When we looked at Second Corinthians before, when he talked about you giving a gift, God loves a cheerful giver, remember? He wants you to give out of your heart, and he says it in the passage very clearly, not begrudgingly. So you notice that even in our church here, I don't talk about how much you should be given, do I? Have you noticed that? Why? Because if I was hammering you every week about 10%, 10%, 10%, which is a typical Baptist thing to do, 10%, how many of you have been hammered like that before? A lot of us. If you've been hammered like that, 10%, what happens when you do give? Are you giving cheerfully? Be honest. No, are you begrudging it? Like, God, why you don't know what my week's been like, Lord. Why are you adding this burden on me? And think about that. Think about it. Jesus said, take, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy. God understands the needs in your life. So you need to go and talk to Him. You understand? And as He prospers you, as He gives you finances to live, you, in your prayer time with Him, discuss what you should be given. And you give. And you'll be a cheerful giver. Because you're doing what God told you to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because, And some of you may not agree with me. Because you've been taught all your life, 10%, the tithe, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's fine. And if you want to argue with me about it, show me from the New Testament. Because the tithe is found in the Old Testament, which was part of what? Everybody, the law, which we have been freed from under what? The new covenant. In fact, he calls it, Paul calls it, this very same writer calls it a grace. Giving is a grace. It is an ability that God gives you to give to others. So I want you to say that. We say, well, I still think it should be. Well, then what part of the law are you going to pick to apply to your life? What part of the law are you going to pick as far as what you're doing? For instance, clothes. A lot of you here are wearing clothes that have a cotton-polyester mix or some kind of a mix, right? If you were to look at the label on your shirt, unless you're 100% cotton here. You know, the Old Testament very clearly says that you were not to wear garments that were had a mixture of things. Oh, that's, that, that's lame, George. We don't need to apply that today. Well, wait a minute now. Why would you pick and choose what you want to apply to from the Old Testament law? Do you understand what I'm saying? See, I think it's better. Well, then we're going to be really hurting as a church. No, 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 no. No. God takes care of us. And trust me, if you connect with Him about what you should be giving, believe me, we'll be okay. All right? I say, I'm not worried. I think if we apply ourselves to what He tells us to do, 
He'll bless us. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, here's those, those are the instructions. Now, when you look at most churches today, how are we doing? Are, are we applying what Paul is saying here? No. There's always a question of integrity, isn't it? You know, there's always a question of integrity. And can I be honest with you? The number one area that there almost always should be in a church integrity is concerning what? Finances. Finances. And listen, when you select a treasurer, and we have a great treasurer here, you need to select someone who just doesn't know how to handle money well, but you need to select someone who can keep confidences. Because we use the offering envelope system here. And you guys want your statements at the end of the year for your tax purposes about how much you get. And you really want the individual who is a treasurer not to say, well, they only get so much. You've got to select a treasurer who will be, you know, who will be confidential. Not just know how to handle money, but what you give is between you and who? You and the Lord. See, I don't know what people give here. Unless you tell me, and please don't tell me, I don't need to know that. Because something happens when a preacher finds out what people are giving to the church. You understand? I've seen it happen. When a preacher finds out what people are giving in a church, he changes his ministry. And he gears it to who? The ones who give the most. And he doesn't have time for who? People who don't give anything or can't give anything. You understand what I'm saying? So, this is an issue of integrity. This is why Paul is saying, which is another reason why Paul is saying, don't take it when I'm there. He doesn't want to give them, make, he doesn't want people who can give, because remember, the Corinthians were a wealthy church, he doesn't want them to take it as an opportunity to go, oh, ho, ho, look at what I'm giving. And do some churches do that? You better believe it. And, and, and think about what James says. James says this. You go all the way to James. James says, when that rich guy comes in, you give him the best seat in the house, but when that poor guy comes, you tell him, sit in the back and be quiet. And he said, that's wrong. See, this is the whole issue about finances. You've got to have integrity in your finances. So let me ask you a question. Do you think the Word of God is applicable to us today? It sure is, just in these four verses. All right, let's go on. Look with me now at verses 5 through 12. He's going to talk about his future visits. Just some things here. We'll go through each of these rather quickly. Uh, notice what he says, verse 5. Now, when I come to, you, come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Okay, so let's look here. Some 
issues concerning visits that he has. Paul plans to visit them when he travels through Macedonia. So he's saying, guys, I'm going to visit you. I'm going to come by. So he's planning to visit them. And here's what he's saying. He may stay with them over the winter. Now, listen, when somebody like that visited, you know, today when, when some big name comes and shows up, he's just here for a Sunday and he leaves. In that day, when Paul showed up, he stayed for a whole winter. Think about that. I know some of you, Joy's got the statement, fish and what, fish and company, three days, right? Yeah, fish and relatives, three days, you know. And, you know, and here's the point I want you to see. He stayed for the whole winter. Now, when he comes for the whole winter, now you're saying, boy, that would be an awful burden on that church. Well, remember Paul's character, though. Paul took care of himself. He never asked anything of the church. Okay, that's why he was a tent maker. He did not want the gospel to be brought into disrepute by requiring them to take care of it. So he's saying, I'm going to spend the whole winter with you guys, maybe. Now, because Paul is staying in Ephesus, he cannot visit them at that very moment. So he's saying, I can't visit you at this moment because I'm staying in Ephesus. So that's what he's saying there. And we see that in verse 7 and 8. But then he gives his reasons why. There are reasons why he can't visit them at this point. Paul tells them that opportunities and opposition are great at the present time. Isn't that right? Isn't that true? Whenever there is opportunity, there is always what? Opposition. You notice how it just kind of goes together? There are great opportunities. A great and effectual door has been opened to us. But he also says in the same breath what? We're being opposed. Listen, I want you to, you've got to write this down. Because I told you, there's some key things we can learn as we look at this. In your life, when God is getting ready to open a door for you, you can better believe it and mark it down, you're going to have opposition. As you are moving forward in, in, in your walk with God, maybe moving forward in your relationship with your spouse, you can better believe it. Satan's going to do everything he can to destroy you, to, to cause a problem, to create havoc in your life. Because he does not want you being effective for the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not want you walking in victory. He does not want you walking close to him. He's going to do everything he can to rob you of your joy and to and try to destroy your life and your family. You've got to recognize that. we are Just as there is opportunity, there is always going to be opposition. Now, here's the problem. We only look for the opportunity, and when the opposition arises, we say, Jesus, what's going on here? Why are you letting this happen to me? Like it's his fault. The problem is it isn't his fault. The Bible very clearly tells us when you have one, you have the other. When you have opportunity, you're going to have opposition. And trust me, Troy and I can sit here and tell you that there are times when conflict will arise in our home and we'll take a step back and we'll say, that was pretty stupid. Why in the world did we argue about that? And we'll realize it wasn't us. It was the biggest button pusher there is, Satan, creating havoc in our home. Have you ever noticed that the most, the most prime time for havoc is right before church? Have you noticed that? I mean, you don't have that much problem going to work, do you? I mean, you don't even want to go to work. And you don't have those kind of problems when you go to work. But coming together as a church family... 
to hear his word and to fellowship with one another and to worship him, you would think that there was something, you know, I mean, it just everything just breaks loose in the house. Every kind of problem, something with the kids, somebody's sick, somebody's fussing. You're rawr, you're growling at each other, you know, and it's just like, oh my goodness, what? And it's like, it's like, what happened? It's Sunday morning, getting ready for church. With opportunity, there's what opposition. You've got to recognize it, and you know what? And you've got to remind yourself. You've got to take a step back because if you're one of those growlers, okay, if I'm talking to my growlers here, if you're one of those growlers on Sunday morning. Button your lip for a moment. Take a step back and say, wait a minute now. Why am, why am I getting all uptight here? Why am I getting all uptight? And back off. And ask God to help and say, Lord, you know we need to be where we need to be. And right now the enemy doesn't want us to be there. You need to help us. Take a t- and talk to him about it. Recognize it. Recognize it. Recognize it, you know. And this isn't just true for Sundays. Let me just stop for a moment. I can, I can go back. Listen to me. I can go back to key decisions in my life. Very first one, who I was married. Now I'm gonna tell you something. That was a very important decision. Listen, don't trivialize a marriage decision. Don't tri- don't tell this. You gotta, you cannot trivialize marriage when you talk to your kids and your grandkids. Because who they marry will affect the rest of their life. I can tell you right now, if I'd married a Fruit Loop, I wouldn't be a minister. See, here's the thing. Satan will always throw up an opposite when there's a door. You've got to remember that. You've got to think about that for your life. Think about decisions in your life. Don't just grab the first thing that opens up because it may not be the right thing. Ask God, give me wisdom to make the right decision. So he tells them that, that opportunities and opposition are great at the present time. Let's go on. Concerning Timothy, Paul tells them to accept and treat Timothy well. Here's the issue with Timothy. The reason why he's saying that is Timothy's a young guy. This isn't even true today. I, believe me, when I was a young pastor in my first church, when you're a young pastor... The tendency is, especially if you've had other pastors, you don't tend to pay too much attention to them. Because they're young and wet behind the ears. And they are. And this is what's going on here. He's saying, you treat him well. In fact, when you go to the letters to Timothy, Paul says to them, don't let no one despise you because of your youth. And, and that's an issue today. Even if a man is called a God, even if he's young, and even if you think you know better, just be patient with him. Don't despise him. He's got a long way to go. He's got a long way to go. He goes on and says, Paul tells them that Apollos cannot visit them at this time. So even Apollos cannot visit them. So then notice with me the conclusion. We're going to look at this verse 13 through 24. He's going to conclude the entire letter with some final instructions. Look with me at verse 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, I know the household of Stephanus, and that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they are devoted themselves to ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Portanus, 
and the handcuffs. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The church in Asia greets you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss, a salutation with my own hands, Paul's. For anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be a curse, O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. So let's spend the rest of our time looking here at the conclusion. First of all, in verses 13 through 16, he gives them an encouragement. Now, here's, listen, this, these encouragements are not just something for you to read. They are something for you to be aware of every day and apply to your life. So the very first thing he says is, Paul tells them to be watchful and stand strong in their faith. You need to be watchful. Now, what do you think it means to be watchful? Anybody? Look, for instance, I'll give you an example. Then I'll help you to understand what it means to be watchful. What if you found out through the grapevine that on Tuesday of next week, a bunch of guys were going to come over and rob you? What are you going to do? You're going to be watchful with your gun? You know what I'm saying? Are you going to be looking with your gun? Are you going to have a few friends there who have their own guns? Do you know what I mean? I mean, just kind of let people know, hey, we're in here and we're ready. Or are you just going to go about life and act like nothing's going to happen? What are you going to do? Be honest. What are you going to do? Lock and load is what Bruce says. Okay? Tom says right on. Okay. That's what being watchful is. Now listen, what does it mean for the Christian life to be watchful? Listen, you live in a world that is ruled by who? Satan. Who is your enemy. Who is seeking every opportunity to devour you. To devour your family. What do you need to do? Be watchful. Because here's the thing. It's not like you're not aware of it. There probably isn't a Sunday that goes by that I don't tell you that you have an enemy who wants to destroy your life. Or a month that goes by if I don't tell you that. But yet, what do we do? We just kind of stick our head like an ostrich in the sand. And then we're like blown away when something happens. Like, why does this happen to me? We don't need to be blown away. This is the world we live in. And God didn't create this world. The world he created was perfect, was it not? Who created the world we're living in now? Sin. Who sinned? Adam. That's exactly right. You see what I'm saying? So he's saying be watchful and stand strong in your faith. Now, I'm going to be watchful, but in order for me to be watchful and to take what's going to come and what life's going to throw at me, and believe me, it will throw the kitchen sink at you. If you're going to be able to handle that, you've got to stand strong in what you believe. Because that's what's going to carry you through the tough times. Is that even in the midst of all that goes wrong, you will find your joy in Jesus because He's there for you in the midst of your suffering. That's the reality. That's the reality. God is not great because He gives you what you want. 
God is great because He is there for you in the midst of your suffering and you have a hope in Him for later on. That's the reality. Stand strong in your faith. Stand strong in your faith. So much, listen, you know, here's the thing, so much are worried about what's on the Master's table than being at the Master's table. We're worried about how God's going to increase my pocketbook. And that's reality. Stand strong in your faith. So you need to think about that. And so what's going to carry you through is you've got to be watchful for whatever life's going to throw at you. And you've got to be watchful. And you've got to stand strong in your faith. No matter what happens, Jesus, I got you. Okay, so let's go on. Here's what he says. Paul tells him that they are to do everything with love. Listen, man. How I'm supposed to be towards you is with love. Love. That's supposed to be my action. My main, the main motivation is love. So when I talk to you, even if I rebuke you, I'm doing it because I love you. Not because, hey, Rob, wagging that finger. Bruce, get rid of that shirt, man. You know better. You know? He's wearing an Eagles shirt, everybody. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but, hey. Yeah, speak with love. With love, Tom. With love. Okay. With love. Okay. Now, Bruce could say, you shouldn't have mentioned that, George. I don't know if that was with love. <laughs> okay. All right. So, all right. Well, I, I love you too, Bruce. Okay. Paul tells him, submit to faithful leaders. Listen, I know it's difficult in this day and age when you see so many pastors who are doing wrong, and so many pastors who are disqualifying themselves. The fact is, is that they're a minority. It's just that they make the news. Or the gossip circuit in the community. But God does give gifts to the church, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, and one of them is a pastor. And... Paul very clearly says you need to submit to godly leaders in your life. Because they're watching over your soul, is what Peter would say. So just remember that, okay? Paul was thankful for the refreshing he received from certain visitors. He was even thankful for visitors that came that refreshed his soul. Here, he's going to give some greetings now. Paul relays greetings from those who are with him. So... When he sends hello to them, it's hello from everybody who's with them. See, what's being communicated there is the universality of the, the community of Christians who are there. Paul greets them with his own handwriting. So what I need to point out to you here is, is that Paul, like a lot of others, Peter did this as well, had someone write for him. Even some of the writers of the Old Testament, uh, Jeremiah had Baruch, would have someone write, because they, what they communicated was oral, and somebody else wrote it down. Now, at the end of this letter, Paul writes with his own handwriting here. Okay, he wants to say, guys, this is not just a dictation, here's a personal note for me. So that's what he's saying there. He pronounces a curse on all who do not love Jesus Christ. Wow! That's reality. Because they are cursed. I don't need to say anything more. I think it says it for itself. Paul extends a traditional blessing as he closes the letter. Now, what kind of a traditional blessing is he saying here? He says, greet everyone with a holy kiss. Aren't you glad we don't do that anymore? You know? 
And in fact, if you notice, have you noticed that the Russians, when they get together, what do they do? They kiss each other on the cheek. You know where that comes from? It comes from the Orthodox Church. It is a carrying out of this command to greet one another. Even though they, are, they may be anti-God, they still kiss each other. That comes from that tradition. So, so this is what he's talking about. Greet each other with a holy kiss. So he extends a personal blessing as he closes his letter. Okay, that's it. We are through First Corinthians. Isn't that amazing?